I'm thinking that because people are hungry for socialism, for being thoughtful, right? Not thoughtfulism, but being thoughtful, and they want to have a comforting meal, right? I think in the next three to six months, you're going to be seeing comfort versions of fancy foods. Welcome to The Profitable Table, fed by Woolco Foods, the nation's first podcast devoted to the business and lifestyle of the hospitality industry. Now, here's your host, Woolco Foods CEO, Stephen Toberoff. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Profitable Table, fed by Wilco Foods. I'm your host, Stephen Toberoff, and today you're going to get the benefit of what I would consider to be a masterclass in execution. We're going through challenging times, to say the least, and the guest that we have today is someone who's really achieved and executed and performed in a way that people would be extremely jealous of under normal circumstances. So I want to first and and really get started here and introduce my guest, Jesse Oldwin. Jesse, thanks a lot for taking the time to come in and speak with me today, really over the phone and speak with me. You know, it's a, it's a pleasure uh, to be here with you and to have the time to speak with you about this unprecedented time. We've had the pleasure to work with you. Jesse is the executive chef at Para Soho, but Jesse's much more than that, and we're going to get into it. But Jesse, before we start sort of getting into details, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and how you got into the restaurant business and, and just sort of your background? I started cooking fairly young, about 14, 15, at a place in California. And uh, I remember as a child going to an orchard in Modesto, which my family that had a farm and eating an apricot. And that really gave me like a sense of like a, what food's supposed to be. I worked in uh, San Diego, possibly Italian uh, place, La Boca. And then I thought I couldn't spread my wings enough. So I came to New York and I've been here ever since for like, uh, I think almost 13, 14 years. 13 years you moved to New York. So that's actually a great story. It reminds me of, of the famous Proust novel, Remembrance of Things Past. So you can sort of just date back your passion for cooking to that first experience. What type of sort of cuisine or, or what aspects of cooking are you most excited about? What, what is your sort of overall philosophy or, uh, on, on various foods and, and just the, your whole sort of presentation from the back of the house as an executive chef? I think that what I've learned in New York, mainly with cooking food that I like to eat, is that it's a great release of, uh, that people enjoy it too because it's comforting. So like if it's, uh, like farm and table, it's not like you're being pretentious. You know, I don't want to be pretentious with my food. I just want to make something that tastes really good. And, uh, usually, like even now, like a parent's home, I make my own family and stuff. So I'm like comfort type food, not trying to get a, a review from any publication. I respect that, and I think that's why Parasoho is doing so phenomenally well, and I think why you're so sought after. You're you're cooking for your customer. You're cooking for someone that you want to have a great meal. You're not cooking for, like you said, a review or any sort of purpose other than the customer experience. And I find that to be something that really transcends all excellent chefs and bakers and everyone else. They they're not pretentious and um, 
I think that's something more that people outside the industry look to. Just to get into it now, because we're obviously through, we're we're several months into an unprecedented time for the restaurant industry, where where the industry is facing headwinds unlike you know anything I've ever seen in my years in this business. And yet, Paris Soho is doing exceptionally well. And I know it's because of your leadership. So can you walk me through a little bit just at the beginning of of how you approach this challenge, knowing that we've got all of this going on outside us? How did you sort of laser beam focus and and get in there and and run this kitchen and achieve the success that you're achieving under these circumstances? Well, I mean, we we only had, I don't know, a week advance notice that we're opening. Because the governor and and the the mayor said we could, right? So when we set in and we clean the kitchen, and it has to be like this super sanitized environment because we want to make sure that we're safe, first of all, you know, and the customers that are, are being served are also safe. And we wanted to create a menu for the summer season that's also friendly for COVID. So we're not like, we weren't serving green um, because, you know, you can't get it to a certain temperature. So we're serving pre-cooked vegetables that came to temperature, and then we're eating them at, at a temperature that we could serve them for summer vegetables or summer dish. So we went that route, you know, watermelons and um, other cards and stuff like that, uh, just because it's, it's a comfort food, especially in the summer. And then we're not like uh, having too much unwashed vegetables. You know, one of the things that I was very encouraged by and continue to be encouraged by is even with everything going on, people love going out to eat and people are social. And I, I don't think that's going to change. And actually, that's been borne out more and more over time. And I think that there are a number of sort of initiatives that have been put in place now, such as outdoor dining, such as cocktails to go, that I think as we move through this and get to the other side, they're going to be truly transformational changes for the better for the hospitality industry in New York. And I'm wondering what you think about those particular you know, changes that have occurred during this, and if there's any other ones that you think are going to be sort of transformational and lasting and, and be a positive for this industry as we move through this. Well, I think that with the outdoor dining, we've been at more than full capacity for the last two months. So we've, we've expanded street, street side dining. Um, so we're a corner restaurant. So we took the, the whole street all the way around the block and made it into our dining room. So we're at full capacity, which has given us the opportunity to do more than we did last year. But it also provides an environment where it's, all again, safe for our employees and safe for the, the guest experience as well. Absolutely. And don't you think, because I read that the mayor's made that not only something that's going to be allowed throughout the rest of the year, and we can sort of get into the challenges of winter in a minute, but something that's going to be available next year as early as June, and I, I would bet they're going to open it up earlier. So this is something that, you know, I, I think is a phenomenal addition to the New York dining scene, because if you go around the world, you go to places, Paris, Vienna, you go to places in the um, United States, Florida, uh, Miami, for example, there's a real outdoor dining thing. And New York, although, of course, there's always places that had tables outside, it was never really like that. And I, I think this is something that people have really taken to. And it sounds like it's been a phenomenal addition to Para as an entity, just as a standalone improvement, if you will. Right. I heard the governor and the mayor say last week that it's going to be a permanent year off So we're getting heater installed. Actually, we had it done yesterday, yesterday, and it was installed for all the street dining as well. So I think having that extra capacity, so we're going from 200 seats inside at 25%, which we're not doing yet because we want to make sure that we have the correct filters and, you know, the MER filters for the 
coronavirus um, to have people sitting outside. But for the meantime, we're putting users outside to be able to have that same capacity and still go into a winter menu now, which will probably be changing next week or so. Um, and having like a ratatouille with salmon and stuff like that. That's really cool. And I'm seeing that across the board with a lot of our customers. The other thing that I think has really been important for restaurants during this time has been the ability to have cocktails served to go. Now, I haven't been super up on this. Did they extend that again? I honestly don't know. Do you know? I think it's extended until the end of this month. But with the outdoor dining extended to be year-round, I think that that is also going to fall suit to that. I think that's another phenomenal addition to the opportunities that are available. And I think that for those of you listening who are aspiring to open a restaurant one day or something, this is very important to listen to because while what we're going through now is extraordinarily challenging and, and, and as we've said, you know, it's created headwinds, there are dynamics in play which are very potentially positive. And so for those of you out there who are thinking about one day opening your own spot, you have to recognize that you might be entering a time where rents may be cheaper than they've been in a long time. You're going to have the benefit, and of course, explore this with your attorney, of outdoor seating that you wouldn't have had before. And if Jesse, you know, and I agree with you, the ability to serve cocktails to go, that's also something that wasn't there before. So I I think it's something for people to take a look at. You're finding, of course, I know because what you're telling me, you're at capacity, and I hear this from so many places that the biggest challenge they have with the outdoor seating is that just people are having to wait to get a table because the demand for it is so strong. As a chef, and you sort of alluded to this, but I'd like to go a little deeper. As you think about the menu heading into winter and sort of the, the, the novel experience of people dining outside in winter, is that shaping any of your thinking about items that you want to put on the menu? Oh, yes, of course. When I create a menu, first of all, I have to think about the volume because now we're doing, I mean, before I got here, they only did under 300 covers. And now we're starting at 420 sometimes, some evenings before 5 o'clock. So we, when I'm creating the menu, I, I'm making sure that it's evenly distributed through the kitchen. And so instead of two guys picking up 15 dishes and one guy picking up two, you know, everybody's picking up five. So execution is super easy. It's a thought out process. Where, you know, if, if I was on the, on the line, would I really want, want to be overwhelmed with 20 dishes and the guys doing two? So that's a thought our process just to create the menu and then have to think about what people want to eat. Because if you're sitting outside and it's cold, you want to have something that's a, a warming dish, a comfort food, uh, or else you don't want to go there. I've learned that with, like, even when I was at Black Swan, um, I had a turkey chili. And that turkey chili, when it was snowing outside, people flock in for it because it was just like something that made you feel like home. That's awesome. In addition to being the uh, executive chef at Paris Soho, you're an extremely sought-after consultant, and I know that it's at um, chefjesse.com. I want to talk a little bit with you and, and sort of pick your brain from the consultant standpoint. When you advise somebody who's, let's say they're opening their first restaurant and they bring you in as the consultant, what would you say are sort of the top two or three pitfalls that they need to avoid as they begin the journey of, of opening up a restaurant? Uh, so the website is chefjesseconsulting.com. I apologize. Yeah, and And you can check them out at Facebook and Instagram at Chef Jesse Consulting as well. I'm sorry about that. Go ahead, Jesse. I, I think that someone opening a restaurant, first of all, you know, it's not a, a laid-back job. You know, you, it's, a, it's harder work than anything else, I think. And with the, the thought of going into opening a business, that is either a wine bar or a restaurant. You should be able to afford to keep it up without a profit for at least two years. 
that's a that's a big number, you know, depending on how much the rent is. He's going to pay your staff, uh, pay the rent, and not get a check yourself for two years. So that's the amount of money you want to have raised at the beginning of the journey? Okay. So that's after you pay for the equipment, after the rent paid for two years, because you're probably going to get a 10-year lease, at least two years to be successful and to stay open after that time. I mean, I was able to generate, you know, the business in COVID just because I changed the menu and because where the location was. You know, we're doing over $100,000 a week right now uh, in sales, but we were doing that last year. So it's, uh, it's difficult to predict that. And then it's only for a short time because we're going to get cold season. So if we can make a menu that's going to be winter warming and be able to provide heating outside, then the journey continues. But if we can't provide the accurate heating and provide the enclosure that people are looking for, then people aren't going to show up for us. When you talk about, you know, the amount of capital that you need when you open up the restaurant and to keep it going, um, you mentioned also that it's a it's a hard work job. And I think that's so important. It's something that comes up in interview after interview that I do that people have to recognize that this isn't um, just sitting at the end of the bar and greeting the guests. Let me ask you this question. Obviously, there's a lot of stories in the paper now about what's going on with respect to rent, with respect to landlords, with respect to New York City in general. Do you feel that now, let's say that there's individuals out there that want to put money to work, they want to go into the restaurant business, they come to you as a consultant. Do you think now is a good time for people to start looking at space or do you think rents are going to fall further or what's your thoughts on the overall landscape from that perspective? Well, I mean, I, I looked back at Nears Tavern and when I was consulting for them, and that was uh, the beginning of COVID. So they wrecked the rent up, and and then the mayor got involved, and you know, and all that happened. And I think that um, I think that in this time, now was a good time to look at space. I mean, I've seen a couple that are on the market that I'm like, oh, that'd be a good opportunity. But then again, what if like, the economy starts down again? Last week they were saying that they can't have a Brooklyn. So, I mean, like, I'm not sure. If someone came to me now, like, a consultant, I'd be like, yeah, look at property. We can have an interview with them and see what the prices are. I know that this place, the whole room, was uh, up for rent a couple of weeks ago. I haven't seen it recently. But they still want, like, $15,000 a month. And it's and it's all indoors, so. How much square foot? It's not, and is it a huge spot? I think it's uh, 13000 square feet. So, rents haven't, you haven't seen rents move that much? Then in that, at least from that one snapshot. Yeah, no, I haven't seen, uh, you know, you're just charging 25000 a month for, for indoor, which you can't use. So if you, if, if you can find a spot for 7000 in the city, which is being heard of, but I, if you can find that, then that's going to be something that you can probably work with because you have to remember, you have to have the two years in the bank. It's a good point. You know, we might be too early in the cycle right now to start looking for the discounts. You know, I, I keep, sort of trying to analogize this to what happened in 08 and 09. And maybe that's not an appropriate analogy because I remember when this happened in 08 and you had the credit crisis, a lot of restaurants that we did business with expanded. A lot of people opened up additional locations. A lot of people renegotiated. I think that there was a dynamic at play in New York City even before COVID started where landlords were just very stubborn. And, you know, we all know that there were more and more vacancies there. But I just think, I don't know, it seems to just be necessary with the law of economics that with retail being decimated and with all the other stuff going on, that eventually rents will move in the favor of potential restaurants. Because even these restaurants that close, Jesse, 
I don't see the landlord going in there and spending money to re-outfit the place to become like a yoga studio or a clothing shop because one of those are not there. So I think eventually they're going to have to find another tenant that's going to want to utilize the space as it's configured. But I guess you're right. There's a lot of uncertainty right now and, and maybe it's... But I think at the very least, would you agree it's not a bad idea to at least start looking or, or put feelers out there if you truly have capital to put to work in a restaurant? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think it, looking right now is the perfect time. I mean, it's a buyer's market. I think it's a, a person that has the job to do something. If you can find a, a place that has the potential outdoor seating and provide the comfort in that aspect, I think that, that's a good choice. Right now is a good time to live. Now, something else I'd like your opinion on, because I think the overall city from what I've been reading and from what I've observed, is sort of changing in the following sense. For many, many years, let's say going back to, let's say from 1994 until about a year ago or two years ago, New York City had undergone a transformation where the quality of life and the safety and the livability of New York reached such a high level that families who would have traditionally moved to the suburbs stayed in the city to raise their children. Uh, elderly people of means were buying places in New York as one of their pied de or even retiring to New York. We all know about all the international money that was coming in to buy apartments. It now seems that those dynamics are unraveling very quickly and it's changing, you know, sort of who's living in the city. And from what I've been hearing, the city's becoming sort of a more a younger place, people who are going out, less families, that type of vibe. Are you seeing that in terms of your clientele or do you have any insight into into what that's going on? And if it is going on, what that impact will be on, on the restaurant community at large in terms of the type of places that'll be successful in accommodating those shifts? Well, I think that in the 90s, you had a lot of old money and I see a lot of the old money leaving New York. They're going to Boston or Florida or Texas. And a lot of the new clientele as so is a lot of the younger hip, you know, hipster type people. And they're looking for a deal. So unless you're, you have per se or 11 Madison, which I want to say 11 Madison serving food, but it's only delivery. And I don't think they're doing 11 at all plates anymore. That, that clientele is no longer in the city. I think it's very, very few people looking for three Michelin star places which is all gravy to be in that category. But I think it's more important to focus on the new clientele that's not not from the 90s. You know, a lot of that clientele has moved away. So when I'm thinking about a menu, like like you're saying, you know, we want to gear it towards the new people that are here, that are buying the condos and, and living in the city. And, you know, all the money from New York, because the prices of living have gone up so much here. You know, the, the, the older... Well, after your money and be like, I'm leaving, I'm going somewhere else and I'll leave all this tax. I think it's a great point. I, I think I've seen the same trend occur post-08. And even, I remember when Frank Restaurant opened up in the East Village and, and then he had other places. There was a movement back then, and I think it's happening again right now, where the ultimate focus is on preparing great food at an affordable price in a very cool environment where people are comfortable. You know, back in the 80s, you look back, you had these restaurants where even if the food was terrible, you were eating in these sort of spectacular museum-like environments and people were okay with that and it was over the top. I think now it's going to really be all about the food, all about a feeling of authenticity, an experience of connection amongst people. 
And I definitely agree with you that the demographics are shifting. Like if you look at the companies that are investing in New York City right now, which are Facebook and Google and Amazon, and you look at the companies that, you know, are probably not going to be investing, you can have a very different type of people from an age perspective and from a personal preference perspective living in New York. It's going to be a major shift. And I completely agree with what you're saying. I think that there might always be a market for these Michelin star uh, places, but I, I think it's going to be a while before those become very much in demand. I think it's it's a different vibe right now. And it's a great vibe for people that can sort of identify it and, and design and experience catered to it. You know what I mean? Because the, most of the Michelin places are are indoor. I mean, Casamona, a friend of mine is uh, the director there, and they're busy because they have the outdoor seating, but a lot of the other like, Perfe is on the, on the seventh floor of the Time Warner building, so they can't have outdoor seating. I know uh, a lot of it in the Columbus Circle area, you have John George and you have uh, Michael White that have restaurants. Haven't been over that way, but I'm assuming they're not doing outdoor dining. No, you're right. That whole experience of somebody coming in and spending a thousand bucks or more or whatever it is for a dining experience, that needs to be indoors and that needs to be in the controlled environment of that restaurant. That, that business model is not malleable enough to adapt to the circumstances that we're dealing with now if they want to stick to that model. You know what I mean? Right, yeah. I mean, Danielle's doing it. They're doing outdoor dining. Is, is it cold enough or is it warm enough? And, and I'm experiencing this now, like I'm serving food and it's coming back because it's cold because it's cold outside. So like I need to serve something that's a winter warm again so it's hot water enough for them to eat it. Definitely. Something I, I think about, and I think this is really unique to restaurants, and this is almost like a, a sociological observation, but... I'm curious to know your thoughts. Like we've evolved now here where we're definitely ordering up whatever we can from Amazon and you've got the meal delivery companies, which I want to get into with you in a minute. And so there's a lot of different things that have uh, come to pass over the past several years that make it much easier and more convenient for us to stay at home. But humans are social and people like to interact with other people. People like to display themselves to other people. It's this whole thing about being alive. You know, are people going to go out and, and want to look really good and get these clothes and do whatever and just sit at home and order up? No, they want to go out be about, show themselves off, whatever. And I think that restaurants are the seminal and, and essential venue for that. And so that's why I'm very bullish on this industry going forward. I mean, even if what you're seeing now, like you're talking about the volume you're doing at Paris Soho, I'm hearing that from a lot of our customers. People want to go out. And so I think the challenge is to conceptually think about designing restaurants, menus, and the whole experience about this real innate human characteristic that's coming through now, which is the need to connect, the need to be social. You know what I mean? Of course, it has to be done in a safe way and everything like that. That's so important right now. But I'm talking about, let's say at some point in the future, we don't have to put a date on it. We know that this is where people are at. So as a consultant, do, do you agree with what I'm saying? And, and also, do you believe that because of that, maybe those restaurants that create just the best food at the most affordable price in the most sort of friendly environment are going to be the winners over the next five to 10 years that are inviting places? I think so. I agree with you. I think that I've made the menu for lunch. Everything's under 20 bucks. Um, I've made the menu for dinner. Everything under 20 bucks except a few, like a steak or a chicken and a salmon is going to be 24, 29, 30, 32 bucks. But everything else is affordable and approachable. And we're doing the volume that I was trying to get for us. You know, I was trying to make it busy. 
So we're doing that 300, 400 mark, you know, customer tonight. Saturdays we do 650 people the whole day or 70 people sometimes. Uh, I think that. But Jesse, can you imagine the volume and the the thing if if there was actually tourists in New York and if there was actually. Oh, it would be. Easier. Right. I mean, that's that's the thing. Like, I, I have to say, and I, I said this in my last interview with Caroline Schiff, I, I'm so, like, honored to be involved in this business because of the resiliency and the creativity that restaurants have shown. Because I really think everything, including the kitchen sink, no pun intended, has been thrown at this industry. And people keep getting up like Rocky. This is like round 13 in, in Rocky 1 where we just kept getting punched and we just keep getting up and Apollo's looking like, when is this guy going to go? You know what I'm saying? What are your thoughts on takeout and delivery in terms of, of what that's meant to, to, to you guys at Para and just sort of in general? What, what are your thoughts on, on that whole experience and how it's been changed over the past several months? Well, uh, I mean, Paris now got down completely with no delivery in March. And we're doing delivery now, but it's very, very slow. Just because people that are in the area, we rather just come to the restaurant. We have enough seating to accommodate that right now. Uh, in the colder, in the colder months, we might have more takeout. Uh, Midtown, the brasserie does a lot more takeout. So we're working on the system for up there. But as far as like neighborhood, like in Brooklyn, takeout's a big thing. Like, I mean, even I get home after working all day and not eating, I'll order takeout at 12.30 in the morning and still get a delivery of a couple of burgers to me and my fiance. So I think takeout is a... It depends where you're at. If you're in a neighborhood like the East Village or if you're in Sunset Park or around Concert Park, that's a great area for delivery option. If you're in that area, I mean, that's what I would do. If I was in... If I was at Nears and Queens, that'd be definitely a place that I would do it. But like I said, it's a decision that each person that has a restaurant has to make. As a chef, do you feel it's important that if you are in a restaurant that that's doing takeout and it's actually a material part of your business, or even if it isn't, do you think chefs need to think independently about dishes that are doing well in the takeout as opposed to being served in dining? Is that something that you would focus on, if you know what I mean? Like promoting those things that travel well or, or any considerations? I mean, like, what are your thoughts on that and from the chef's standpoint and knowing that your food is going to be ordered, let's say, eight times out of 10 for takeout versus in-house? How does that change what you do as a chef? Like, I like to get a burger for takeout, for delivery, right? And I'm sure a lot of people do. But the problem with getting a burger, from a chef standpoint, the problem with getting a burger delivered is you usually get to you and it's like the bun's doggy and the lettuce is wilted and the fries are cold. So what I do as a chef for that specific dish, as I'll do what, what I remember as a kid, in the 90s, McDonald's did, they had the McDLT, where you get the burger and the fries and a hot side and the lettuce and bun on the cold side. That separate that for the customer that I'm serving. You get two different boxes. You get one box with the burger and the cheese and the bacon or whatever, right? And one box with the burger, bun, and the lettuce and tomato and all the cold stuff. So when it gets to your apartment, that you order the delivery, you put it together yourself and you have like you're in the restaurant. You're thinking about the experience of the guests, even if I'm not in the restaurant. You know, something I'd like your opinion on, because I've interviewed, you know, you'd mentioned uh, Black Swan and I interviewed Serration uh, of Black Swan 
And, you know, we talked about a bunch of different stuff. And one of the things that he mentioned was when he came to Bed-Stuy, he was one of the first, you know, gastro pub and that whole thing. And the question I wanted to ask you from your consulting expertise is the following. If you were advising a client, do you feel it's a better bet for somebody who opens up a space in a given neighborhood, whatever it is, to try to create a concept that's already in tune with the vibe of that neighborhood? Or do you feel it's sometimes worth the risk of sort of being the trendsetter and putting a certain type of cuisine or a certain type of presentation and be the first one to offer that in the neighborhood and almost make it a destination spot. Do you have any sort of preference from a strategic standpoint? Considering I was a step of black swan with Serration and we were trendsetters there and we made a ton of money revenue stream in that area. When I walked into uh, Black Swan in early 2013 and I changed the menu, I mean, it got busier. So I was like, what's going on? But I'm like, you know, if you want people to come here, then you have to give them a reason to come here. So we changed it from a bar into a gas pub, uh, essentially, when I got there. But yeah, I am a risk taker, and I will be the first one to go into a neighborhood that's never seen that kind of food and serve it. And people will come, and they'll be like, wow, this is amazing. I think it's cool to be a risk taker too, because I think one of the things that we find in New York City is New York City is always changing. And so if you design a concept specifically to accommodate the particular tastes of a neighborhood, you leave yourself vulnerable if that you know neighborhood changes. And then all of a sudden people that were really into one type of cuisine you know, they've moved and, and, you know, you don't have that. I think that, let me ask you this question. What are your thoughts about, and this is obviously nothing new. This has been going on for a very long time. I have a feeling it's going to happen to a much greater degree going forward. And perhaps it may even happen in ways it hasn't before. What do you think about if you were advising somebody opening a restaurant, what are your thoughts about them creating some form of collaborative financial arrangement with the landlord where they get a, say, a below market rent in exchange for a certain percentage? Or do you have any other ideas as to how restaurants and landlords can work together to utilize the space that can generate profits for both parties? I've always felt like if, if the rent is a huge amount that you can negotiate for a percentage of sales. So, like, I'm giving you 2% of my sales for rent, you know, or 5% or whatever it would be that uh, the landlord's company would. I know that in San Diego, when I worked in the Colorado Restaurant Group, that's what they did. I mean, this is like 20 years ago, too. So, I mean, I don't know what they're doing now, but I think they just buy their property. So, that should also be an option to afford to buy the property. Buy the property. Like, it's... That's the best deal. If you can if you can own the property that you operate within, that is a home run. I mean, obviously the risk is you want to make sure that your business, to the extent you can make sure, is successful and profitable. But if you can own where you're operating, that's the absolute home run because you're paying rent to yourself any appreciation of the real estate you get. And a, a huge fixed cost is just that fixed. You know, you don't have to sweat it every five or 10 years. Yes, if anybody out there is going to buy a building, then they can just come to me to help them make sure their business is successful. <laughs> it's a good idea. I mean, the truth is, it really is a good idea. I mean, I, I love the idea of owning the, the real estate where you operate your business. And I actually remember reading an article in the Wall Street Journal, maybe four or five months before the pandemic, where that was you know, something people were looking to do. And quite frankly, with real estate changing, it might be something that's 
that's even more available. You know, I want to ask you one more question. You've been very generous here, Jesse, and I I could talk for all day, but let me ask you this question. From a menu option, from just from a trend option, let's say, what are the two or three things or one or two things, whatever it is, that you see right now that is something new and that is going to be very much present on a lot of menus? You know, I know that th- there's always these cyclical things, and obviously it's it's unique to every circumstances, and I don't suggest that people follow trends, but I know that no one has their ear to what's going on better than you do. I'm curious if there's any trend that you're seeing that you think is going to be one that lasts for a while. I like to be the one starting trends. Uh, I don't know all of them. So let me ask you this question. Are there any ideas without giving it away? That's an even, that's an even more interesting uh, thing. What trend would you look to, Well, I guess you're already starting it, or have you? What trend have you started, or what trend are you thinking of getting started based upon what's going on over the next, say, three to six months? I'm thinking that because people are hungry for socialism, for being social, right? Not socialism, but being social, and they want to have a comforting meal, right? I think in the next three to six months, you're going to be seeing comfort versions of fancy food because you're outside. I love that. So I think that like, if people are still to eat like a charcuterie plate, you're going to see like a fancy hot dog. I think that's brilliant. For, for those of you listening, you might have been given a tip that would have cost you a lot of money if you get to get access to it. I think that's a great idea. You know, one of the things that had obviously been very much going on before this was these sort of over-the-top desserts that everyone was taking pictures of. But I love what you just said as a concept, Jesse. I think it's absolutely brilliant. I think it's going to happen. Take any sort of dish that you could think of and sort of put a quote-unquote comfort spin on it. You know, I like that a lot. What I did for this last menu at Parasol, I did, you know, everybody likes chicken and rice, right? I eat it almost twice a week. So I made a chicken and rice dish at Parasol. That is basically a chicken and week. So it's grilled with bulgur rice and a, a nice fancy arugula salad. And that's probably the number one starting dish that we have there. Second to the, uh, the salmon's the second, but I mean, Chicken and rice, it's like, I didn't make that up. I just made it really good. That's what great chefs do. You know, a lot of times people get confused and I, I see, I've seen this happen so many times where you have a new investor into the restaurant business, Jesse, and I'm sure you've seen this too. And they hire a chef and the chef tells the owner, I have these incredible complex creations that no one's had and it's going to be a mind blowing thing and everything's going to be new and the place fails. And the reason it fails, in my opinion, I, I'm curious to your thoughts is like people want the food to taste great and be well prepared. That's what makes a great chef, not who can put together the most sort of eclectic or odd concoction of foods. It's like, who can make great chicken with rice or grilled salmon or scrambled eggs or something like that? That's where a chef can stand out. I think that when chefs become over-egotistic, I'm sure that's the word, but their ego grows too much where they can't understand what they're doing anymore, then that's the reason they're so failed. If you have a chef that understands what people want and understands what good food is, what flavors are, then your chef can, you know, I'm putting a new dish on the menu, later on changing the menu, so I want to have a fall menu. I'm replacing the watermelon salad with a pear that's poached in wine and roasted beet, a little bit of ricotta cheese, a little bit of salva, olive oil, salt, sea salt, and arugula. Very simple flavors, but when they combine in your mouth, it's like an explosion. That's what I'm looking for. I don't want to be pretentious, but I want to have a really good, solid foundation of food. Well, that's awesome. 
That's why you're a great chef. I mean, this has been a, um, it's an honor to work with you, but I think it's better to just call you a friend. And this has been an absolutely great interview. For those of you that are listening, whether you're already in the restaurant space or, or you're looking to get into it, you may want to listen to it again, because I think a lot of the points that Jesse made and, and the one in particular in the end, absolutely essential. Again, if you're looking to get in touch with Jesse, you can reach him at chefjesseconsulting.com. His social media handles are at Chef Jesse consulting. I can't think of anyone better to partner up with at the beginning of a journey. And Jesse, again, thank you very, very much for taking the time to talk with me. I've enjoyed this so much. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Awesome, man. Have a great day. All right, you too. Well, that was a really enjoyable and interesting interview with Chef Jesse. I love talking to Jesse because he excels in every aspect of the game. His cuisine is phenomenal. His understanding of the front of the house, his understanding of of every aspect of this business. And I think that was an extremely helpful and and enjoyable interview, and I hope everyone enjoyed it. The book that I want to recommend this week is a book by Peter Thiel called Zero to One. It is a terrific book on business, and it's a terrific book about thinking in general. And uh, I got a tremendous amount of value. I'm getting tremendous value out of reading that book. And I think you'll really, really enjoy it. It's helped me refine and somewhat change the way I think for the better. And it's also very inspiring. For those of you that have been emailing and DMing me, thank you so much. I read every single one of them and I get a tremendous amount of value from what people are writing. If you'd like to email me, please email me at steven at woolcofoods.com or you can uh, DM me on Instagram at woolcofoods. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe, please recommend it to a friend, but most importantly, have an awesome, awesome day. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to The Profitable Table, fed by Woolco Foods. Please be sure to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And to learn more about Woolco Foods or Stephen Toberoff, please visit us at woolcofoods.net.